Welcome to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fullick. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to business continuity, risk, disaster recovery, resilience, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I am the only Alex Fullick there. I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. Today's show, we're going to have, at least the first part, is going to be quite the lesson for me, because we're going to talk about a subject I haven't touched on at all in almost six years of doing this. And I want to welcome to the show the author of How to Not Kill Your Business, Erica Anderson. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alex, and thank you to your listeners. I And believe it or not, you were recommended to me by a previous guest. Uh, yes. Brendan Monaghan. Yes. Yes. Said you're an avid marathoner, if I, if I recall. I, well, what's avid? I, I mean, I'm not running two-hour marathons, but I've done six or seven at this point. I'm going to be doing oh, wow. Chicago. I did New York twice. I did Boston, the Marine Corps Marathon. So, wow, and I can only more, dream more about running one. around the block. <laughs> More than one, I don't know. I, I really don't want to call it avid, but I've done enough. <laughs> well, it's great to have you here on the show. Now, I know you and I have touched base a couple of times uh, through email and uh, had a quick chat as well. Can you take a minute or two and tell us about yourself, what you do, and how you got into what we do? Sure. Um, so, Eric Andreessen, I am a lot of things. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a recovering lawyer is because I used to <laughs> practice corporate law. And then I'm a veteran. I was a I went to do active duty JAG uh, for almost a decade, and then I left that and became a um, an entrepreneur and started my own consulting company for business continuity and resilience. At the same time, I became a professor of emergency management for the graduate um, master's of public administration program at the University of Texas in El Paso, and I wrote a book. So that in simple is is uh, what I am, who I am, right? Um, how I got here is basically when I was in the military, I was, we have what we call the PCS season, so permanent change of station. So when every summer we have a lot of change of staff and we lost eight lawyers and we got four. And because I was a lawyer in my previous career and not just, you know, new they said, hey, Erica, you're going to take four jobs. And I was like, okay, great. <laughs> and one of them was an EOC legal advisor. And they go, don't worry about it. You're only going to have to go to one meeting a quarter. It won't be anything. And then two weeks later, there was torrential rain, two inches of rain a night for like a week, created a state of emergency around the installation. The installation was flooded. The town was flooded. The interstate was flooded for a couple of um, you know, exits. And I was like, wow, I, I kind of really like what this is all about and helping out here. And I wanted to do more like it and decided to get my own MPA. It was being offered at a university nearby. So I did that in the event of ever got in the military, I can do something like that. 
And it turned out that every one of my duty stations after that, I had some kind of touch with emergency management. So it just stayed in my blood. And then I saw at a certain point that there was no reason these types of principles could not be applied to businesses. In addition to the fact that the military practices continue of operations every single day, it's a 24-7 international organization that needs to run on a very critical mission. And continuity of operations is basically business continuity. Yeah. Uh, I, I understand from the book, that's the military's term for it. Yes. Uh, I remember we used to have that when I first started, but it, uh, you know, 26 years ago, but it disappeared rather quickly um, mm -hmm. because everybody wanted their own terminology. Right. So, I just want to be clear because you, you mentioned because of the book, you knew what continuity of operations is. That's only like in the intro. I do not use hardly any industry terms unless I need to mm -hmm. um, because I wanted to appeal to the people who don't know business continuity by and large, and who need to know it. And it's the small and mid-sized business owners. Yeah. And you do add humor in here too. Uh, <laughs> there is some some funny stuff in here. So I'm kind of looking forward to talking to you because uh, I got a feeling there's probably going to be some humor here too. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the show. I'm glad you were able to uh, be a part of this. And I said, uh, I'm going to get schooled today because I've wanted to have someone on the show to talk about business continuity and legal, how they work together, how they don't work together, the benefits, you know, everything about it. And it's been very difficult for me to find someone to talk about it. So my question to you, uh, oh, and for the record, I did provide Erica some questions. See, I, I'm not afraid to make myself look stupid. And she had a funny comment going, wow, I'm going to school you <laughs> on legal and business continuity uh, you know, based on the questions that I gave her. So I'm not going to even touch any of those questions. <laughs> you know, so why don't we just start off with a basic one? Lisa, uh, legal is often seen as an afterthought in business continuity, but it's not. How, how can we benefit by working with legal? There, there is so much, um, there, there's a, a wide, wide range of first where legal fits within business continuity. So if you are a larger company, normally you have a legal department. That is one of the integral departments you need to be engaging in addition to finance and sales and operations and HR to do your business continuity plan for your company. Now, one of the really big parts of a legal um, attorney's job within business continuity is a lot about regulatory compliance. So they're the ones who are making sure that the companies are adhering to what they need to. So they're not getting fined. They're not getting shut down. They're not doing something out of regulations. Because again, every time there's some type of, usually it's a, with, with a change of uh, political leadership. So where, the, you know, it happened not too long ago where the Supreme Court decided to remove a certain thing from the EPA, a certain power. And then everyone's like, okay, we don't need to do this anymore. But then Congress goes, no, no, wait, Supreme Court, we're putting this back in. So then it was a, a law. So then they had to revert back to that. So having lawyers to be able to make sure that you are able to be continuous based off of that type of disruption, not the disaster, because everybody assumes that when they go, business continuity is disasters, it's also disruptions, yeah. which have nothing to do with natural disasters, of course. Um, the other thing is from... Now, now we're going to you know step out of the business continuity specific role and look at what legal does for business continuity, having nothing to do with regulatory compliance. So 
one of the things that people need uh, to be concerned with, if you're a company, you have a board of directors. Board of directors have a fiduciary duty to the company and the shareholders, where it is, you know, it's, it's to do no harm, but to also put the profits of the uh, company, not their own personal profits ahead of, like the interest of the company is ahead of their own personal profits. And if you decide to skimp on in, in getting cybersecurity or some type of business continuity plan or management, then that can be seen as a dereliction of your duty or fiduciary mm-hmm. duty to take care of it because you're not spending money on that program, which means that you're getting compensated more because there's more money to compensate you. So that's one one factor is a shareholder derivative actions. And there were certain, um, during the pandemic, Tyson Food Company had a shareholder derivative action completely based on how they responded to the, the, the pandemic. They said that they responded too slow. They weren't taking it seriously. So they caused a lot of the employees to get sick and have to shut down the factories. So they blamed the decisions of the board of directors in what they did. So it's not just about whether or not you have a business continuity plan, it's how you respond to a disaster in the moment. So that's something that companies do need to think about. Um, additionally, there's a whole other subset of things like uh, force majeure clauses. Now, in every single contract, there is a force majeure clause. And it pretty much says, I get out of my obligation to perform a duty under this contract to you without penalty, because due to some circumstances that were not foreseen and beyond my control, I can't do this. And originally, back in the day, it was acts of God. And then it became natural disasters and fires and floods, because these things are not necessarily caused by an act of God. Now they're like man-made issues. And then they started adding war and terrorism and cyber hackers. And, you know, then they also started adding labor strikes. So these are also things that are very integral to business continuity, like labor strikes as part of supply chain management. And cyber, you know, you have your your, uh, vandals. These are domestic terrorists who want to vandalize infrastructure, critical infrastructure. That's also going to impact you. And whether or not that excuses you from performance. So when you have a third party vendor, which is weird, when you look at a force majeure clause saying, you know what, we may be completely operational and fine and in tip top condition, but one of our suppliers is having an issue. And because of that, we don't have to perform our contract. So I have been talking to a lot of people about tearing apart every single line. And first of all, most people don't know what a force majeure clause is. They don't even know that's in a contract. And I read everything, even at the DMV. They're like, hey, you just need to sign this. I go, okay. And I'm staring at the guys. No, just sign here. I go, no, no, it's a legal document. I'm going to read it. And then I will sign it. And he's like, no one ever does that. Like, okay, great. Um, Yeah. But like finding the force majeure clause, it's a lot of times it's in terms and conditions. It might even be under warranty. It's going to be both in both places. It'll have the same types of um, provisions. And then when you could tear apart what actually they're telling you as the contracting party, these things that business continuity should take care of are going to prevent them from having to perform their contract. Well, I've got a couple of questions for you. One is the uh, regulatory and compliance. I think a lot of people believe that that's what audit was doing. But that's not the case. Um, it is that you're auditing to see if, if you're in line with, but you're also there. Audits are done. 
at, at times. Now, believe I'm rusty when it comes to corporate law. I haven't done corporate law in, since 2011. Um, audits are done on a timed basis. So like every quarter, every month, depending on the industry. Um, if it's when the SEC, they continually come out with something new, usually every March, April. So it's about compliance with that. But again, if you're not, if you're only looking to one regulatory body, so like say the SEC, but then the Supreme Court does something, you're not paying attention to that, that overrules the SEC. Like it needs to be on a more continuous basis, not necessarily a full audit of everything that's in place. So more proactive in that regard. So is that fair to say that uh, a lawyer could be a part of the audit group or that the audit group and the legal uh, arm of the company should be working together with business continuity, like everybody interacting, not just either or? Yes. So I'll give you an example. When I was in the military, and this happens even in uh, companies because everybody sees legal as this separate entity. It's like, oh, legal's over there. And as a JAG officer... And it's fair, you know, we're definitely different types of people, very strange in a lot of regards, Um, not the most social either, but I'm a social butterfly, surprisingly, right? And I did not like, I wanted to learn more about what was going on, not just did I get this, you know, assignment, do it, hand it off. I'm also a person who likes to work smarter, not harder. So I got to know the departments I needed to liaise with and do work for. And instead of having to bang my head against the desk and figure out the answer to a question, because I had a relationship with these people in the departments within the division I worked in, I was able to be like, hey, I have a question. And they're like, oh, hey, Erica, sure. Here's the answer. I'm like, great, thank you. And certainly you build those wonderful relationships by cross-talking with other stakeholders and shareholders within the organization. Mm-hmm. But then you also, you're seen as approachable And I think that also makes you have a more robust and thorough product when you're interacting with other people. And and the other thing I would do is I said, I I like to work smarter, not harder. When I was advising individual clients for even small claims court type of appearances, I wanted them to to understand everything. And if I could explain it to them in a way they understood, then they could help me build their case for them. If I'm using big words because I have a couple of letters after my name, because, you know, clearly um that all that does is make me look like i'm pompous and i can mm. win some kind of trivia contest because i have a large vocabulary that doesn't mean i'm actually smart doesn't mean i'm actually intelligent doesn't mean i can actually communicate and impart knowledge upon people if i can do that by talking to somebody like a regular person i don't understand why people don't understand how simplifying communication so everybody has a part in it just makes everything run more smoothly and better yeah Now, here's an experience I had the other day. We were filling out a uh, questionnaire from uh, a city government asking about our business continuity, disaster recovery, excuse me, capabilities, et cetera. We did it, and we were told, now you have to send it to legal. Almost everyone in the room or on the call had their eyes kind of go, you know, roll their eyes. Mm -hmm. So how can you approach a group like that when everybody is seeing legal already as either a roadblock or an, an issue, like an issue. They're an issue. Oh, great. Now they're going to do this or that or whatever. So how can you approach them to build that relationship to try and get rid of that feeling? 
I think it's because it's an unknown and people will buy into whatever they were told before. So mm. um, I was, when I was training somebody to take over my position, when I was leaving to go to a different um, location, we were at a meeting. I said, just come along with me. This is our, this is what we're doing at this meeting. He's like, okay. And then someone's like, anybody have any questions? And he raised his hand. And the question he asked, I realized was just going off on a lark because he was just personally curious about something that had nothing to do with legal. And I gave him a very stern talking to afterwards. I said, don't ever do that in a meeting like this with all these other sections, because the second legal raises their hand, they think, "Uh oh, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. And you're just curious what this is. That is something you ask offline after the meeting to the person you want to ask. Don't ever ask that in a meeting. You're, you're wasting people's time. You're getting them nervous for no reason. And that's because he didn't know them. They knew me. Um, so if I was asking, they, they could tell if there's something wrong or I'm just asking questions, but I also wouldn't prolong meetings by asking superfluous questions anyway. But when you have that relationship and you understand like, oh, this is what you do. Oh, this is how you are. Oh, I can understand this now. It shatters the illusions and allows you to have that type of relationship where you can talk to them and not be afraid and not be like, oh God. And even I'm like, God, I hate lawyers because I always want, I can say it, right? <laughs> And like one of my favorite co- uh, little cartoons, it's a guy handing at a desk, handing another guy a folder. He's like, run this by legal, but run real fast. So ethics doesn't see it. Which <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of that. It's like, yeah, nobody wants to run by legal. <laughs> we are the killjoys. That's, that's, you know, we kill joy in everything. I even had people say to me, and I, and I fought back with some lawyers when I was prosecuting, the way you draft charges, somebody kicked it back to me because I said, um, which instead of like there, I, I can't remember the exact word I used, but it was like really semantics. It was a, a thesaurus flip of the dime. And he's like, don't say this, say this. I said, don't waste time and prolong this process by kicking something back because you prefer to use this word over this word when they mean the same damn thing. And that, yeah. that person was acting like a lawyer. And it's like, you perpetuate the stereotype, like just get the work done. Who cares whether yeah. it's this word, that word, just get it done. And I guess it doesn't help when you see uh, uh, Hollywood, uh, you know, make movies and TV shows that kind of build on that stereotype. So to Correct. Speak, really. Yeah, and I mean, there's some pretty good. I'm, I'm actually going through Suits right now because um, somebody had told me when I was deployed, "Hey, you ever watch Suits?" And I said, "No." They go, well, "The main guy, you remind me of him. He's such a a hole, but in a good way." I was like, "Okay, um, thanks." <laughs> and I started watching it. And you're like, you know what? I'm not offended. <laughs> He's actually a pretty decent guy. <laughs> My next question <clears throat> relates back to the force majeure uh, yeah. clause and uh, pieces. You meant, you gave some examples there, uh, floods, earthquakes, and things like that. In the business continuity industry and disaster recovery, whatever you want to call it, there's always talk about making sure that we identify our risks and what our impacts are going to be, regardless of what the trigger is. You know, the flood can come from a river, a lake, rain, uh, sprinklers, anything. So how do you reconcile what is force majeure and what isn't when we're supposed to be working on developing risk mitigation strategies and factors and response plans so that we are prepared and yet we have a force majeure to fall back on? It almost says, kind of feels as though, do I really need to worry about all this planning if I've got a force majeure contract or clause? So um, one of the the arts of getting legal involved is so you don't get sued. 
Um, so you can have a force majeure clause, which gets you out. And then if somebody doesn't agree with it, they can sue and say that it was an improper application of the force majeure clause. And then you'll have the judiciary who's going to look at it. And, you know, there's a test. And the test mm -hmm. is, was this a foreseeable event? And then did you do things that were reasonable to prevent or mitigate the damage so you did not have this problem? Uh, if you're a business in Florida, um, hurricanes are foreseeable. And if you've done nothing to prepare, then that is not reasonable behavior. Mm -hmm. So you'll be found It's like, no, you still have to perform or you're going to lose money on that. Um, the other thing is you have to worry about is when you're after, when you do contract, you may say, I, I agree to, or I promise to provide this much of service. If you are impacted by a disaster disruption that causes you to kick off a force majeure or uh, you, you, you can't perform, there is a uh, legal contractual uh, treaties uh, that it's called frustration of purpose. So that gets a, that it's a, an addition or um, a different venue or, or, it's, or it's a doctrine of impossibility for frustration of purpose or doctrine of impossibility that says because of an event, I, I can't provide what I promised you because of these things. And they can say, actually, no, it's the way you decided to divvy up your remaining supply to your current um, clients that prevented my client from getting their fair share or a degradation of service. This is another thing that legal needs to be thinking, like getting involved in. This is why I think business continuity professionals and legal should become besties, because it's not just about the regulatory compliance. It's about where are there dangers here? Where are the parameters? Mm -hmm. Where can we actually, where we have exposure and limit that exposure, both from a legal perspective and also from a, a business continuity perspective. Yeah, I, li I like that piece, the, uh, you know, help identify dangers and gaps, because we will have, obviously, our perceptions and our viewpoints that we want to address. And, you know, we have our standards and guidelines and things like that. The legal could come from another direction and see it completely different mm -hmm. you know, and say, hey, did you think of this and this? You know, you got you identified some great stuff. But from this angle, what about this, this and this? That's really right. a, a good point. And that, but that's how I also do business continuity. So as you read in my book, um, one of my pre-readers turned into basically a case study where I was like, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to ask you these questions like I'm a five-year-old. I need you to explain to me, how do you make icing? And like I know how to make icing basically, but all these, it's like people who do business continuity to other people, to other people, it's, it's not an act, right? But it's not, it's not a punishment. If you're the person who needs a business continuity plan, you're too close to it. You are, you know, your business way too intimately, you know, too much. You can't filter, right? You cannot edit your own paper. That's yeah. why you need someone to come in and start asking. When I ask what sounds like really simple questions, and I always give credit to the movie Philadelphia, when Denzel Washington says over and over again as a lawyer, so explain to me like I'm a five-year-old. And I will say that, explain to me like a five-year-old. How do you do this? What about this? And if I break it down to such a level where people are like, no, that's so simple. I don't even think about that anymore. It's like, that's where you're missing everything. That's where you have exposure because you're like, oh, oh. And you should see the faces of these people where it's like, I can't believe I didn't even think about that. It's so obvious. I'm like, but it's not because you see it every day. And the things that you see every day, you just, it just becomes a blur in the background. Yeah. I, I learned that years ago. It's called uh, the curse of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you don't know 
that you haven't covered something because you know something so well that it just glosses over something you don't even realize you're glossing over it right you know, or that you've skipped it because it's just so natural for you that your knowledge doesn't pick up all those little details or nuances that others would uh you know notice going well, wait wait I don't get the link well the link is so obvious well yeah it is for you cuz you know it but it's not for me because I don't know it right or or it's like um with muscle memory kind of stuff mm-hmm. if you're like well how did you tell me every step you took to get to work today and it's like uh well I I drove to work no no every step did you walk out the door did you, which which thing did you lock first yeah. I don't know because it's just so rote at this point and that's where you know, the devils are in the details. And this is where the mm-hmm. lawyers come in and say this and that. And that's the other thing fun about lawyers. Somebody was asking me about a quote the other day, not of a movie, of like a quote for doing business. And I said, I'm a lawyer. I'm going to tell you it depends because I can't give you a quote unless I know the full left and right parameters of this. I can give you a number. This number is a fiction until I get more information to fill it in. So yeah. most everything is it depends. Yeah. Yeah. I tell people, uh, you know, it depends is an acceptable uh, answer. And so is, I don't know. Right. Acceptable. Okay. Now we know where we stand. But we like, we like in the military. um, I don't know, but I'll get that answer for you. Yes. Yeah. What every uh, CIO likes to hear. If you, they don't have the, you don't have the answer for them. Tell them that. (laughs) Well, we've come to the end of our first segment, uh, Erica. This was great. It was great to hear some uh, different perspectives. And I'm so glad we got to talk about legal today. And I know in our second segment, we're going to change gears a little bit more, and we're going to address another uh, subject that hasn't been broached very much. So I'm looking forward to that, too. We're talking with Erica Anderson today, author of How to Not Kill Your Business. And we will be right back. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Challenges in the workplace and within teams are only increasing as companies struggle to transition to a post-COVID-19 remote work situation. These unstable times have stretched companies and their leaders beyond their capacity, and they do not know how to maintain a balance of authority, empathy, compassion, and assertiveness toward their coworkers, much less continue their own career trajectory. Leading with Intention with Monique Gagnon offers support, encouragement, and tools to help corporate leaders address their personal shortcomings and emerge from these unprecedented times as well-rounded, self-assured leaders. Leading with Intention, Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. How do you cultivate braver, more daring leaders? And how do you embed the value of courage in your culture? How do you take charge of your life and achieve your goals and bring about positive changes that propel you forward? On The Leader's Edge, join your hosts, Steve and Ernie, as they bring a mix of insights in personal and leadership growth that shapes your culture and the culture around you. Lean in and learn intentionally how to accelerate into your next best life. Tune into The Leader's Edge with Ernalita DeCumos and Steve Steele, Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Erica Anderson, author of How to Not Kill Your Business. Uh, Erica, we had a great first segment uh, talking about legal and business continuity. Now we're going to change gears a little bit and look at community resilience and business continuity. So my first question to you is, what do you consider as community resilience? Um, I think community resilience is really the heart of the matter for any type of disruption or disaster where you have everybody who is vested in and enjoying surviving and thriving after something that has happened. And one of the the beautiful things, there's a book written by Rebecca Solnit called um, A Paradise in Hell. And it's about, yes, it's a great book where, you know, Mm -hmm. she talks about how you can have people who hate each other, have nothing in common, but because they've gone through a disaster together, they now have this bond. And it's really just about how everybody wants to come back to something that looks like it's normal. And part of this normalcy isn't just, you know, being able to get your blue tarp on your roof from FEMA for free or, or the Army Corps of Engineers who are doing the blue tarp program. It's also about being able to do something simply like getting a cup of coffee because that, like anything that resembles your normal day-to-day, and you're going to have a new normal, but anything that resembles your normal day-to-day is going to bring you mentally very far along in getting through something that has just happened to you. And I'm a big fan of having people call it surviving, a survivor of a disaster, vice, a victim of a disaster, because things happen to victims. Um, Survivors work through and experience things instead. And as somebody who had prosecuted sex assaults, that is also it gives the vic- the vic- the survivor, not the victim, it gives the survivor a sense of agency that they can do something the next time, that they are better prepared for the next time. So I really, really love how when you when you want to talk about this type of thing happening within a community, community being resilient, it's a community of survivors. It's a community of people who are thriving in the face of great turmoil and are able to thrive regardless of what normal looks like, being a new normal or old normal. I, I like the comment there about the uh, you know, having a cup of coffee. Uh, it really proves that sometimes it's the small things that matter. Right. It is. It, it's a warm meal. It's a, a, you know, a smile. It's a whole bunch of little things that we take for granted every day that becomes our creature comforts. And just being able to have something that resembled what that once was really, really, really just fills up the tank within your personal resilience. Now, business continuity is often seen as part of uh, an organization, something an organization does. How do you transfer that to a community level? Well, I think it's really simple because um, I've given talks about how you can take business continuity principles and apply them to nonprofits and to local governments because they have the same end state. Now they all want to have uh, longevity. You know, and most of the people, when you're thinking about what local government's doing, they're not doing business continuity. They're doing it to a, to a certain degree, but local governments are really known for emergency management, which is being proactive. Mm-hmm. Business continuity is being proactive. 
again, both of them want to be, uh, the end goal is for longevity after a, a disaster. But the, the real difference is emergency management is about saving um, and safeguarding people and business continuity is about safeguarding operations. And governments have operations, not-for-profits have operations. There are so many things that, there are so many synergies between everything. It's not in, in a little vacuum. It's not, okay, we've had this disaster and now, oh, we expect the church to be available because the church has volunteers and we expect the schools to be available so this kids can go to school. Everybody's impacted. Everybody's impacted by disaster, even the first responders. You expect them to show up. No, your first responders are you and your neighbors because those yeah. first responders are also survivors of the disaster. They still have to get to work until before they can get to you. So I think when people get out of this very um, myopic view of what disasters are and the impacts are, and they realize just how many people and places and things it touches, that it just becomes common sense or it just makes sense that everybody should be involved and have a say in this and help each other out. And FEMA did two different programs under two different administrations. Um, under the Clinton administration, uh, James Witt, who was the FEMA administrator at the time, started Project Impact. And that was doing a public-private partnership in certain communities to make them disaster-proof um, and disaster-resistant partnerships. So uh, specifically in the, the state of Washington, Home Depot was helping uh, by running classes on how to earthquake-proof homes. And of course, what is the benefit for this class, right? They're going to teach this class and then everybody leaves this classroom and they're going out into the aisles of Home Depot and buying these products. And there was a, an earthquake shortly after they started this program, the Nisqually earthquake. And it was because not just, you know, within the individual's homes, they were able to mitigate a lot of the, the death that would have happened. But even throughout this, this, the city of Seattle, um, they did some decommissioning of water towers that would have crashed. I can go more into that, but that would just take a while for me to even like, because I'm also a emergency management professor, so I got all this stuff in my head. But then you also have on the Obama administrator, uh, administration, Craig Fugate, who was the FEMA administrator then, he did the whole community response. He was a big fan of saying, at first it was, we don't want to be in the recovery business. We'll, we'll, we'll do the response. We don't want to be stuck around recovery. So we think that everybody should have their form of agency and in being involved in and, and doing things to prepare and mitigate disasters. And, because everybody knows better. It's better. I know what I need more than you're going to tell me as an expert, like, Erica, you need this to be done. And it's like, actually, no, this is where I live. It's, I, I know what I got. If you let the people take it, they have more pride in and they take more care in what they're doing to prepare. Otherwise, things get wasted. You know, things show up that they don't need. In addition to the fact, you have these resources you don't need to be going other places that are also impacted. So that's another thing about the community being involved with the types of things geared toward longevity and businesses are such an integral part of this framework. They're the ones who are going to be making that coffee you're buying to give you normalcy. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of things uh, you mentioned at the beginning there, uh, bringing some of these business continuity principles to the local government or uh, local community level. What specific principles were you referring to? Uh, business impact analysis, um, they they do some level of risk analysis. But so when you when you look at, for example, in uh, West Texas and El Paso specifically, I was giving a lecture uh, the night before Thanksgiving. 
And I was talking about specifically business continuity being applied to uh, nonprofits and local government. And I was like, you know, there are certain things you're going to figure out your vulnerabilities, like um, earthquakes, for example. No, we don't really get earthquakes in El Paso. So I'm like, we just had one last week. I said, really? She said, yes. So we're going on the lecture. And then she's like, at the end, so should we do preparations for like earthquake drills and whatnot? I said, yeah. And she goes, but why? I said, why not? And she said, well, you know, we don't really get earthquakes. I go, you just told me you had one last week. And she went, oh, yeah, I guess. And then the next day they had two more earthquakes. So it's like, there are, when you when you start identifying things, you're like, okay, this is actually going to impact us. I mean, unfortunately, they're going to do a lot more because fracking is causing a lot more earthquakes um, in the Western part of the state, which had never experienced earthquakes before. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about saving the physical structure and saving the lives. Like I said, that was the emergency management part. You also want to be able to make operations continue. And even if it's not just saving the people who are doing the operations, you still want your government to open. You still want the lights to turn on. You still want those municipal resources to be there. And a lot of that you can do very easily by implementing a business continuity plan. So as I introduced this, I said, you know, business continuity is often seen as something within an organization and bringing it out. And we talked earlier about building relationships and networking and things like that. So should business continuity professionals reach out to community leaders or should community leaders reach out to business continuity? So what are your suggestions on bringing those together so that you can create some of that community resilience and get everybody involved and, and do do what needs to get done? Okay. I have two responses and they're very different. Um, sure. First is... FEMA has actually published something about business continuity being an integral part of uh, community resilience. But they said, with the caveat, they believe that business continuity professionals are more concerned with the organization's uh, profits and money. Mm -hmm. So they think that they're actually not going to get very involved. Um, I I would love for that to be wrong. Um, When you look at a company like Anheuser-Busch and Budweiser, when there is a a natural disaster, they start making uh, and canning water because they have plenty of canning abilities in water because one of the two main ingredients of beer is water. So, you know, if Budweiser can do this, other companies can. But under the um, Economic Development Administration, they have a program uh, said CEDS. It's a Comprehensive Economic Development uh, Strategy where they go into... uh, local communities and and regions and they they are working toward capacity building for economic resiliency of the area and they get a whole bunch of people involved um, individuals organizations local government um, education institutions and private individuals and these are people if you start talking if they're already meeting this is a cornerstone project of the economic development administration if you say to them if we're talking about economic resiliency of an area, it's a no-brainer that business continuity is one of the first things that you you put in there. You know, people want to talk about, oh, you can get sales, oh, you can get your product down, you can get your marketing down. That's all well and good. But if you don't have a door that opens and a catch register that opens because you don't have your operations being maintained and continuous, then what good is that? And there's even, because uh, I live in North Carolina, there is, um, they call they specifically deal with rural small businesses. 
and they have very unique challenges. And one of the first things in their recommendation after massive report uh, on what they need to do to survive is number one, get involved in business continuity. You have specific grants also that are available from um, the US Chamber with FedEx. I believe they, they partner with FedEx, where if you have a business continuity plan and you register that with them, if you are a, a business that's in impacted disaster area, they will give you a $5,000 grant to get back on your feet. But the requirement is you have to have a business continuity plan. So this all just makes sense. Like just put it in from the beginning, just inject that into the conversation and make it part of the standard. Well, you think it would be that easy. There's still a lot of uh, communities or organizations and even individuals who don't think business continuity on any level is important. No. No, and one of the things I struggle with is why people want to see it as an expense and not a cost-saving program or an asset. Because, you know, one of the FEMA um, statistics is for every $1 spent on the front end, you save seven on the back end. Why is that not true for any type of preparation or mitigation in any business? So if you spend mm -hmm. money on being able to, well, let's put it this way. Like, uh, what, what kick in the bank account hurts more when you're spending the money in advance or when you're spending the money, when it's not on your terms, it's on the disaster's terms. Yeah. It's on the terms of the people who are the contractors after the fact. It's like, oh, I'm now in high demand and there's less of me. So I get to charge more. That's a bigger kick in the bank account. You still want that cash flow happening. That's, that is what the return on investment is. You get instant security and, and um, cash flow continuous. What people I think also struggle with when it comes to business continuity plans is the proof of concept, they say, okay, we don't have that right away. You have to wait for a disaster. Not necessarily. You instantly have security. You are instantly a more secure company or organization or government or whatever entity you are as a result. And disasters happen every single day, but they're not the kind that get reported in the papers because a lot of times it's just business as usual. You get used to it. You're able to overcome it. It's just, you know, a thing that happens. Mm -hmm. This continuity allows you to do that because everybody wants to talk about, well, I've done risk, risk management, risk mitigation. It's not risk eradication. There's still the propensity for failure to happen. You still <clears> need <throat> to do something. And my favorite analogy of late that I like to tell people is, you know, if you have a goal of driving from point A to point B, your risk management plan is to overlay your map with where the potholes are in a two-lane highway. So, you know, <laughs> okay, I need to switch over, switch over. What if there's cattle on the road? What if there's a rock slide? Those cattle ain't moving. They're stubborn. Yeah. Who's coming to pick those rocks? Depends on how far out it is, right? Yeah. If you've done business continuity, you're going to pop open your trunk, pull out your bucket with asphalt and your shovel, fill in the pothole and be on your merry way. Yeah. I've used uh, roughly the same analogy, actually, uh, telling people, you know, we've all used business continuity, whether you know it or not. Mm -hmm. You can be driving to work and there's an accident and you have to find your way around it. Mm -hmm. you know, to be able to keep going. That's continuity. You know, you're doing something different. <clears throat> so it's interesting that you kind of had the same uh, analogy there. Um, one of the things I was just thinking about as you were talking is creating plans on a community level. Are there different ways of testing those? Because that's different than just having the head of each department sitting in a, a office boardroom, you know, talking about what they're going to do. A community is different because there's a lot of other things to think about. So are there, do you validate these plans differently? Um, I think you can do, so 
having, I'm always a big fan of everybody getting out and meeting their neighbors, right? So I went out and met my division neighbors, you know, when I was in the Jack Horse, I wanted to meet who else was in my neighborhood. I wanted to have these relationships. And I advise companies, it's like, okay, look at who your first responders are, look at your fire department, get friendly with them and have them come check out your location. Let them know if there's anything of concern here. And then they will sometimes cross train you. They, they'll, you can show up to their trainings. They can show up to your trainings. You get training for free. You ask them to participate in an exercise. They will often make sure that that's the thing that happens. So getting involved, that's part of getting involved in the community. So you're going to test each other on a little level. There's no problem with that becoming a, a grander exercise as well, because emergency management planners do know that you have to exercise the plan. Business continuity pro it's great if you have a plan, you don't know if it works unless you've tested mm -hmm. it. Now, what I've done for the military, as I've done apparently everything, um, I wrote injects for uh, exercises. Mm -hmm. And the smallest exercise I did was 200 people. The largest I did was 4,000. And of course, that one took a lot more time than the other. But you know, one of the things that I learned, because I didn't know what I was doing straight away, um, the first time I wrote injects for an exercise, they were 100% legal. This gets back to not being in a vacuum and, and, and cross-training and cross-talking and not being stovepipe. Almost every single one of my injects was missed. And I was like, well, they're terrible. They didn't know how to see this, blah, blah, blah. And I realized that was wrong on two levels. Number one, um, I'm responsible for training them. So if they missed it, that's part of my, my fault. But number two, none of these things happen in a vacuum. So the second mm -hmm. go... When I wanted to do the 4,000 person exercise, I was like, all right, departments, where do you see this happening? Where something like this, would this happen here? They're like, yeah, this would happen with this, this, and this. I'm like, great, let's write this together and have like the legal aspect here and here and here. And that made for a much more fruitful exercise in Jack because mm -hmm. now we were able to present it in something that looked real. It wasn't sterile. It wasn't in a vacuum, like something the way it actually happens. These things can be done. Uh, I like what you ha had to say there you know, with the injects, because sometimes you can really throw people for a loop, too, because everyone can just, their jaw can hit the uh, floor. Never thought of that. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. And it could be something really likely. <laughs> you know, The likelihood is really high, and why didn't we ever think of that? So yeah. th those are interesting. The other thing I thought was uh, interesting is, your earlier example, you talked about Budweiser um, making water uh, mm -hmm. bottles for for disasters. Is it? Uh, would you say it's also important then for communities to build partnerships with their local businesses and organizations, so that yeah. something like that can happen? You know, Budweiser, we know they're going to supply water. Uh, company X Y Z is going going to supply something else. You know, building those relationships. I think it's important for um, to see what everybody's capabilities are, because remember, if you're going to be impacted, so are they. And if they're not going to be if they're not going to be able to, you know, it's great to be like, OK, we got, you know, Joe's sandwich shop is going to give us food. But if, you know, Joe particularly is impacted or his sandwich shop is shut down because he's been impacted, then 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 what? Again, you you're, you've stuck yourself in the same position. It's great to know what resources you have, who has these capabilities, not necessarily put somebody on the hook. I mean, Anheuser-Busch is a massive organization that they're able to do something to distribute water throughout the United States. We have smaller companies that are not, you know, franchises or subsidiaries of larger companies. 
it's still super helpful because I think what a lot of business owners forget is they have a mission statement and their mission statement is to provide something to the community, not necessarily to the word, the community. They're looking at their customer, their client. They're saying, these people live in a community. They make up the community. They're the ones coming into the shop door. And when you realize when you're not just enhancing their individual lives, you're enhancing the entire community's lives. So there's um, a town over from here. They just lost their one major industry. They decided to close and move. And the mayor's like, we'll die without that industry. However, we can, while we can't find another major industry to take over that one place, what we can do is get a lot of small businesses in. And that makes a difference. That's what's mm-hmm. building up the community. Everybody who gets involved in cares. That's the thing is you, you care. You have a mission, you're providing a service. You're caring about who you're serving and where you are. Well, on that note, believe it or not, we've come to the end of the show. <laughs> that was quick. <laughs> yeah, it did. Time flew by. Uh, Erica, I really appreciate everything uh, you shared with us today, uh, community resilience and the legal uh, part. I think those uh, two very interesting uh, takes on business continuity. I hope professionals out there see that, you know, it's not just them in an office. Uh, and I like what uh, you mentioned too about looking after profit first, you know, no, that's not what it's about, you know, and unfortunately I can admit to have uh, running into people like that, you know, who have that perception. So I really appreciate uh, your chat today. Thank you for joining us and congratulations on the book. Thank you. Once again, how to not kill your business. Uh, there is some humor in here. You'll you'll like it. Lots of pages that uh, I had uh, dog-eared here. So, so thank you once again. I really appreciate you sharing your time and your expertise with us. Thank you for having me. And everybody watching and listening, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.